Good morning to our Museum District campus. I'm so glad y'all are here. Happy Mother's Day to all of you mamas in the house. Also, want to say good morning and happy Mother's Day to everybody over at our Timber Grove campus tuning in right now with us at 8200 Washington Avenue. And of course, everybody joining us online, wherever you are in the world. We got folks watching us in all over the United States and some other countries as well. So it's really cool to have you as part of the story today. Hey, uh, my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. We haven't met yet or we haven't gotten to know each other yet. Special welcome to you. And we are extra grateful to the mamas in the house. I know Mother's Day can be, can be bittersweet for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And we recognize that and fully and own that and support you. And if you're in pain today for whatever reasons, like we're with you in that. But we also just want to joyfully give God thanks for our mothers and for the ways that God's love is like a mother's love for us, ferocious and fierce and protective and, and unconditional. And uh, many of us have, have had the blessing of having good moms in this life, and we know exactly what it's like to be loved that way. So happy Mother's Day, and we're really, really grateful for y'all, uh, you mothers. So uh, today I have a special announcement before we get into, <laughs> y'all are like another special announcement. It feels like this guy always has a special announcement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I get it, I get it, announcement fatigue, but this is going to be short, okay, um, the, uh, the Maybe God podcast team, I'm, I'm the host of the Maybe God podcast, and it's a part of the Story Church, um, it's not a separate entity that has a different sort of revenue stream or anything like that, it doesn't bring in money, it's just a ministry to reach non-religious people with the message of Jesus, and we've been doing it since 2018, and, I mean, it's really blown up. Like, it's just like 20,000 downloads a month at this point um, to the podcast, which is crazy. 20,000 unique downloads per month. Um, we, in 2019, really, our uh, producer, executive uh, producer, uh, Julie Miller-Cretois, who is the media director at the Story Church, Julie really had it laid on her heart by God to create our first ever documentary film. And uh, some of you came last year to a red carpet event at Midtown um, where we rolled out the, the first of, uh, or one of four parts to this four-part docu-series that's based on an, a two-part episode of the podcast we did in 20, 2018 called Can Loving Illegals Save Our Souls? So it's an episode about the border crisis and the people that are crossing and why they're crossing and and, um, and the people on this side of the border that are, you know, trying to love them well, especially the Christian communities that we found that are doing their best to be like Jesus to folks who are strangers to them, even in the midst of this politically controversial time that we are in. It's complicated, y'all. And a lot of times loving like Jesus is very complicated. So we wanted to make this uh, film called Across, and we did. And I'm excited to say that as of uh, this past week, Across is finished, it is complete, all four parts are done, um, and we will be releasing Across to the wide public in June, next, next month. You can find out more about Across at the website that we've created for this film called acrossdocumentary.com, acrossdocumentary.com. You can also see the brand new trailer that we had made for this uh, docu-series. We don't know what God's gonna do with this, but we hope it's something good. We don't need it to make money or anything. We hope to really have better conversations with our neighbors and with other churches and Christians across this great land, and uh, hopefully God can use this film to that end. So I hope you'll uh, check, that, check out that website, check out that trailer, share it with your friends, and next month it'll be available um, through that same website. All right, really proud of Julie and the team for seeing this project through. A labor of love, man, I'll tell you. So it's very exciting. 
All right, um, we're going to get into today's message. Uh, if you're in the house here or over at Timber Grove, you had study guides that were given to you when you walked in the door. If you're online, they'll be linked. The study guide online will be linked in the comments section of whatever platform you're watching on. And we are in part two of a message series on baptism. And the series is called Down to the River, like the great song from uh, O Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> and from other places. It wasn't just in O Brother, Where Art Thou? And uh, I don't know if they sang it at Timber Grove. We sang it here this morning before our uh, sermon. And it's a great song. And, and some of you uh, experienced uh, what it's like to go down to the river on your way to church this morning. It has been, it has been a downpour, man. I'm glad y'all made it safely. I had hoped that it was over before the 8:30 service started, or during the 8:30 service, it came to an end. But y'all came in here just as soaking wet as the 8:30 people came in here. So I'm glad, I'm glad you made it, and thank you for for braving the elements to get here. The question of this series is, what is baptism for? What does it mean? Why is it important? And if you're not baptized, you're going to be faced with an invitation or a challenge to ask yourself, what's keeping me from being baptized? If it's really this important, then why am I not baptized? And why is it not a part of my life? So every week of this series, we're looking at a different facet of baptism. Today, I'd like to talk about how um, baptism is like a new birth or a rebirth. And to be truly and totally baptized means to be born again. All right, now let's unpack that phrase for a second. What comes to mind when you think about the, the phrase or the category of born-again Christians? Don't answer out loud, please. You might insult someone, all right? Everybody's answer is going to be different on this. Some people are like, of course I'm born again. I'm a Christian. Other people are going to be like, I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again like those crazy people. You know, it kind of has a brand of its own. It's kind of like evangelical in that way. It's sort of taking, taking on a, a whole different category of its own, like it has been, become known for being a subsect of Christianity um, and the people in that subsect, according to the world, right? I don't believe this, but according to the world, that subsect of born-again Christians are different from us. They're somehow less sophisticated from normal Christians, or they're somehow anti-intellectual or, or rapidly Pentecostal or, or you know, they, they don't believe in taking your kid to the doctor or when they, just pray for them or, they, or they're always hyper-conservative politically. There's all kinds of baggage that comes along with that brand, born-again Christian. But do you call yourself born again? Is that a phrase you use to describe your salvation in Christ if you're a Christian? I know not everybody here is, and that's okay. That's why we're here. But if you are a Christian, do you think of yourself as born again? If so, why? And if not, more importantly, why not? Because that's what we're going to see today. According to Jesus, who's the one we claim to follow, there is no such thing as a Christian who's not been born again. And that the phrase born again and the word Christian are in every way conceivable synonyms. Okay? So to be a Christian is to be born again, and it all has to do with baptism, as we're going to learn today. So we're going to be in John chapter 3. If you want to follow along with me, you can pull out a Bible, get the Bible in the chair back in front of you, you and get your Bible at home if you're watching online or over at Timber Grove. They got Bibles in the chair backs too, somewhere, I think, I remember. And uh, if not, then follow along on the study guides or on the screen as we read this very famous exchange between Jesus and an older teacher named Nicodemus from John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a Pharisee. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Okay? 
So that's, a, that's an appropriate response to a Pharisee. They're like, ah, you hear the baby? Okay, ah, that's what, yeah, okay. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So let's pause. We're going to get to the rest of the story, but let's talk just for a second about who Pharisees were and who Nicodemus was. Pharisees were a, uh, a social theological movement within first century Judaism that really had hit its stride about the time Jesus was, was walking the earth. It uh, sort of peaked in first century BC Judaism and first century AD Judaism. So this is their, this is their moment and the Pharisees were one of several Jewish parties, like sort of theological, political parties within Judaism, and they were gaining strength by the day in this period. The Pharisees were a bunch of sort of blue-collar guys. They were not born into their role as Pharisees, like some of the other parties within Judaism, like the Sadducees were an elitist group. The Jewish elite families Sort of their kids inherited their Sadduceeism. You didn't inherit Phariseeism. You had to work for it. You had to earn it. The Pharisees were incredibly talented and, and intellectually gifted men who were small in number. Josephus said that at their peak, there was only 6,000 of them in, uh, the, among the Israelites. And they had to pass a series of tests to be accepted into Phariseeism, and then they had to keep living exactly according to the letter of the law of Moses, following all 600 plus laws to the letter in order to stay in good standing as Pharisees. I can only imagine as someone who's not much for rules myself, I would never have even been drawn to the Pharisee class of people, but I know people who would be drawn to that. The Eagle Scout guys, you know, the Eagle Scouts, the Presbyterian types, you know, it's like, I can imagine certain groups of people that would be drawn to that kind of, there's lots of ways to get theology wrong. I'm not saying that way is particularly wrong, but I can get the sense of what kind of psyche a Pharisee would have. These guys had to prove that they had memorized the entire book of the Psalms. It's 150 psalms. It's like the biggest book you can find according to how many pages it looks like when you're holding it in the Bible. It's huge. They had to memorize all 600 plus rules in the law of Moses and recite them by memory. This is incredible what these guys could do. And, and Nicodemus, who came to Jesus in this story, was one of them. Not only was he one of the Pharisees, so he had worked his tail off his whole life, but he had also risen to this title of a member of the ruling party or the ruling council of the Jews. I think that's a reference to the Sanhedrin, um, which was the sort of supreme court of the Jewish people in the first century. So he's a member of that as well. And so he's really done well for himself. And all this, especially given the fact that he came most likely from a blue-collar working-class family, as his name would entail, Nicodemus means victory of the common man. Literally, that's what that name means, victory of the common man. No, like, wealthy elite family would name their, their kid victory of the common man in those days. And so it kind of tells you where he came from, the stock he came from, and the life he had built for himself. Hey, all respect to Nicodemus, he had done very well for himself. Sort of a rags-to-riches kind of a story. And now he's coming to Jesus under the cover of night, 
probably because given everything he had worked to earn for himself, it would have been very risky for him to be seen one-on-one with Jesus in any way that looks like he's fraternizing with this man who is a threat to the Pharisaic establishment. All right? So that's why he came to Jesus in the, in the cover of night. Seems pretty clear. Context clues being what they are. Let's keep reading. John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And here's Nicodemus's gut-level instinctual response. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? Now, is he joking? I don't think so. I've known a lot of Eagle Scouts and Presbyterians. They don't seem like the joking type to me. I think he's making a point. If something is true, it must be literally true. This man's whole life was literal. He was very successful because of how good he was at being literal. And now Jesus comes along with his huge crowds and miracles and stuff being not literal, not literal enough for Nicodemus to get his head around. So what are you saying is what, is what I hear Nicodemus asking. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The spirit blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So all of this is hitting Nicodemus hard. I think because he comes to Jesus on these sort of good terms, like trying to meet him man to man, eye to eye, I think he likes Jesus. I think he wants Jesus to make sense and to fit into his worldview. But all this stuff about everyone who believes can be saved was like antithetical to everything Nicodemus and his brothers had built their lives on. What do you mean everyone who believes? What about the bad guys? Just because at a certain point, at the very end, they believe. That's not fair. We've worked our tails off all our lives to follow the letter of the law. What do we get? We get, we should get more than that guy gets. Like that's the mentality. That's why Jesus always told those parables that he told about the, the, the rewards in the kingdom of God being across the board. No matter what time you get there, you get paid the same with heaven. And the Pharisee says, well, why don't I get more if I gave more? What do I get for being with you longer, God? And God's response through Jesus was, well, you got to be with me longer. Isn't that enough? You need a pat on the back? You need, you need fame before men? And Jesus was always hitting that hard. Why? Because the Pharisees were following him around. Yes, they criticized him, but some of them followed him. Some of the Pharisees became some of the most dynamic Christians in the first generation church, all right? So, so Nicodemus is torn here. And when Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they, what, follow all 613 rules? No, that's what Nicodemus thought. That's what some of us today might think. Unless you follow all the right rules and live the right way, you can't, you can't get into heaven. So you live in fear, constant anxiety, exhausted, trying to live the right life, guilty when you don't. And Jesus comes along and says, all you got to do is be born. Be born of water and the Spirit. What's that mean? 
There's a little controversy in theological nerd circles, like the ones I run in, where it's like uh, commentaries and volumes being written about what Jesus meant with this cryptic phrase, be, water, be born of water and the Spirit. And I confess to you, I think, I don't remember when, but I think I taught this wrong in the past at the story. Because one time I remember teaching on this passage and saying, well, it's probably that the fact that Jesus said, you're born of water with your mama, physical birth, and then you're born of the Spirit by the Spirit of God. You're spiritually reborn. That's, so you're born and you're born again. The reason I think that's wrong, this is not a salvation issue. It's not a huge deal. I'm not expecting lightning to strike at any moment for getting it wrong before. But what, what it's, it's important to understand this at the same time because sometimes we can superimpose our modern-day axioms and idioms onto the Bible and read things into the Bible that aren't really there and it's unnecessary because the Bible is usually almost always very clear if we just look for it, and, and, and the Bible itself will explain other parts of the Bible. Let me explain what I mean. When we say, see Jesus saying, first you're born of water and then of the Spirit, we think, oh, a mama's water breaks and then a baby's born, right? That's the physical birth. There is no evidence whatsoever of in the ancient world anywhere really, but especially in the Bible, of people thinking of the amniotic birth fluid as water, Nowhere in the Bible does it say that a, a baby floats in water or that the mama's water breaks and then a baby is born in water. No, it talks more about baby being born in blood than water, actually. And if you ever witnessed the childbirth, let me tell you, there's, <laughs> you can get how they got there, right? But Jesus, the Bible, no one in the Bible ever talks about that water being what we're born in physically. And more importantly, instead of imposing our modern-day axioms like water-breaking and physical birth onto the Bible, we should search the Scriptures and find the precedent. Jesus says this about water and the Spirit standing firm on generations of precedent. Old Testament teachings about the twofold work of God being of water and the Spirit in us. Okay? Let me give you one example of many that I could offer, okay? So this is from Ezekiel. Let's look at Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, where the prophet, uh, God is speaking through the prophet to the people at a time when the people are desperate for God to move. And God says to the people through Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, and from all your idols. So what does God do with water? He cleans us. He purifies us. He washes off the muck and dirt and mud that we get ourselves into. And then he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The fundamental problem with fundamentalism, in Christianity at least, is that it flips the script that God intended, not just in Jesus Christ, but throughout his word. You see, even here, it is the move of God that brings us near to him, and by being near to him, we are moved to obey. And Pharisees and other people of like-mindedness would say, well, first we obey, you learn to obey, you figure out how to obey, and then maybe God comes near, and then maybe you can be saved, then maybe you can be good. If you obey, bless you, and then you can be redeemed. And God throughout the scriptures is saying, I'm going to come. I'm going to wash you off with water. I'm going to put my spirit in you and give you a new heart, and then you will obey. 
because you have a new heart, because I have given you this free gift of salvation, and you believed it and received it, and now you can live a new life and a different life. And this is throughout Scripture. With water, he washes us off. With the Spirit, he makes us new. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, for example. If anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old one has gone. The new one is here. So Christians took all of this teaching, including the teaching of Jesus with Nicodemus about water and the Spirit, and they adopted it into their understanding of baptism. And when we are baptized, it is a twofold act of God. To be truly and totally baptized is to be washed of your sin, and it is to be given and recreated a new, as a new person, a new creation, given a new heart, as the Lord promised, even in the days of Ezekiel. So why this uh, why this particular analogy of being born? It's kind of weird. Nicodemus caught on to the weirdness of it. Supposed to crawl back inside. My mama, what's this man talking about? You know, it's like very weird to say you need to be born again. Well, in order to understand, I think, why it's important for us to get this concept, maybe we should ask ourselves why Jesus knew it was important for a man like Nicodemus to get this concept. This man who had relied on his own capacity and his own discipline and his own elbow grease and his own work ethic his whole life, this man could not think any other way than salvation is what you make it. It is yours to achieve. And what better analogy than childbirth to absolutely destroy that understanding of salvation? Let me give you an example. How many of you remember the day that you were born? Good. No hands went up. I'm really glad. It means you're actually listening and not just giving me, you know, giving me your best on a Sunday morning to power through. You're listening. No one remembers the day they were born. Why? You had nothing to do with it. You did nothing. You were an inanimate object at best when you were born. You were alive and fully human. Don't get me wrong, but you achieved nothing. When you were born, some of you even did everything you could to make it as difficult as possible for your poor mother. It was the most painful experience of her life, thanks to you. You wouldn't face the right way. You were breached. You wouldn't come out on time. Some of you were huge. I was almost 10 pounds myself. I'm sorry, mom. You know, but, but we did nothing to be born. Being born is, isn't about what you've done. It's about the one who delivered you. And that's true about your mama, it's your first birth, and it's true about your God and your second birth. It has nothing to do with you, your capacity, your ability, your, your willingness to do all the right things and your track record of doing them. Nope, nope, nope. It's just about receiving this free gift of new life. And this absolutely shook Nicodemus, I think, because something changed in him. Throughout this conversation, he asks a question in verse 9. Let's keep reading John 3, verse 9. How can this be? How can this be? How can what be? Look back up. Look back up. I think, I think he's talking about Jesus' teachings about uh, the water and the Spirit and how it's for everyone, right? How can this be? 
Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have an eternal life in him. Let me name the obvious there. I'm not going to teach about it, but the snake in the wilderness thing's weird, right? Just look it up. It's a pretty cool story from the book of Numbers. Um, and it's where we get our medical symbol of the snake wrapped around the staff and all that. Like, that's where it comes from. And uh, it was a symbol of healing and salvation in the wilderness that God gave to the people through Moses. But Jesus here is equating himself to that the sun must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Everyone, Jesus, everyone. It doesn't seem fair or right to Nicodemus in his legalistic mentality. And then we get to maybe the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3, 16. Y'all knew I was going to get there, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever does what? Whoever what? Believes in him, that's it, shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This was undoubtedly a tough message for Nicodemus to hear. How do you accept a whole new framework like this when your heels have been dug into this legalistic mentality? Man, it takes a real kind of courage to change your whole worldview like that and turn from what you built your life on to accept something new like this. But what happened with Nicodemus after this? How did this all hit him? What, what changed in this old Pharisee's heart, if anything? Well, luckily, we have some clues. And I love this about the Bible, when the Bible drops more breadcrumbs for us along the, the trail to help us understand what exactly, you know, happened and how to close the, the loop on some of these stories. I love Nicodemus' story. And it goes on past John 3, all the way through John chapter 7. For example, when, when the Pharisees have decided to have Jesus arrested, they've already decided he needs to die. They're going to have him arrested. They're going to have him charged. They're going to have him killed and be done with him and this threat he's posed. And they insist that they are all together of one mind in their sort of banding against Jesus. But look what happened. John chapter 7, verse 45. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring Jesus in? So they had sent the temple guard to arrest him. No one ever spoke the way this man does. So they went to arrest him and he talked them out of it. And then he probably like saved their souls in the process. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the, guard replied, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in Jesus? This is the Pharisees talking. No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, this mob that doesn't know the Bible, they, there is a curse on them. And then Nicodemus, Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, now he asked this of the Pharisees, mind you, 
Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? So Nicodemus breaks ranks. Nicodemus sticks his neck out there and puts it on the line. They replied to him, are you from Galilee too? Now, what's that mean? Did they not know where Nicodemus was from? No, that was an insult. That's like when somebody says to me, aren't you from Red Lake? You know, it's like, I am from Red Lake, but it's still an insult when you say it like that, you know? <laughs> or somebody in the 830 service, I said, well, what would another example of this be like if someone screamed, Dallas? <laughs> okay. This is like, nothing good can come from there, right? That's the idea. I don't believe that about Dallas. My, my sister's in Dallas, okay? And I love people. But anyway, you get the idea. They're saying, aren't you from, Gal- or are you from Galilee too? Just like those losers, right? And he says, look into it. They said, look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Nothing good could come from that place. So they're trying to put Nicodemus back in his place because he has insulted them. They just said in the verse before, we're all of one mind here. None of us is with him. And then Nicodemus says, you know, should we really be doing this? Is this, is this what the Bible calls us to do? He really risks a lot here in terms of social capital, at least, if not authority and power and pay. But he still stepped up. And it's not the only time he did something like this. It gets even better. Because after the Pharisees accomplished what they set out to accomplish with the help of the other ruling class and the Romans, they they had Jesus brutally murdered, brutally executed on a cross. After that, we find that there were two Pharisees, two absolute heroes who stepped up to ensure that Jesus received the burial that he deserved. This is in John chapter 19, verses 38 and 39. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly uh, because he feared the Jewish leaders. Not only was he a disciple of Jesus, Um, who feared the Jewish leaders. He was one of the Jewish leaders. We have lots of ample historical evidence that suggests Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, just just like Nicodemus was, okay? So with Pilate, Pontius Pilate's permission, Joseph of Arimathea came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of expensive oils, ointments, and other things to to, uh, embalm or preserve the body and make this unpleasant death as pleasant as it could be. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. An honorable burial was critical to a Jewish person and a Jewish family. But someone who died as a criminal, someone like Jesus, in this case, it was against the law of Moses, against the letter of the law to give someone like that a proper Jewish burial. And who was it that came along to give Jesus a proper burial? Was it his closest friends? Was it Peter? Was it John? Was it the guys that really should have gotten it? No, those guys were hiding. These two Pharisees, these two members of the Sanhedrin, who probably had the most to lose in terms of worldly possessions and power, they're the ones that took the risk of asking for Jesus' body, although that could have gotten them criminalized as well for being you know, in, on his team. They could have gotten killed for that. And then they bring, Nicodemus brings 75 pounds 
of expensive oils and ointments. The only person in the first century that is on record to have received more oils and ointments, aloes and such, than Jesus received was King Herod, who was so full of himself that he made sure he received more. You know, it's just sort of his MO. 75 pounds, that's several, several years' wages worth that Nicodemus brought. The only thing I can assume, you guys, about Nicodemus is that he had a genuine change of heart. Nicodemus was not the man in John chapter 19 when he's helping Jesus be buried properly that he was in John chapter 3 when he came to Jesus under the cover of night with all these questions and incredulity. Something had transformed him. And I think what he experienced was this kind of new birth that Jesus told him about. I think he became a new man. And I think sometimes that happens when God provokes us with uncomfortable truths that we don't want to hear. When I think of the men and women and people that I've seen over the years be transformed in a radical way like this, it's usually because they've been confronted with some truth that is undeniably true but incredibly uncomfortable. Like when Jesus said, anyone and everyone who believes in me can be saved, whether or not they've lived like you, Nicodemus. And then something changed in Nicodemus's heart. I've seen this happen with people over the years. I, I once um, <clears throat> was the pastor, along with my wife, Giovanna, we were the student pastors of a church, tiny little church in Kansas City, inner city Kansas City. The, it used to be like an Italian neighborhood, and it became a lot more diverse over the years, and it just became a really difficult uh, neighborhood in which to live and do um, ministry, but that's where we were during our seminary years. We had a member of that congregation who was a big, hulking beast of a man, and his attitude was bigger than his body was. It's just the worst kind of guy to deal with sometimes, and his name was Ken. Ken Dahl. Uh, first name Ken. <laughs> <laughs> Last name, Dahl. I'm not joking. Ken Dahl. And, you know, sometimes you get uh, clues, like what made someone who they are today. And I think maybe <laughs> growing up with that name, Ken Dahl, uh, might have shaped him in some ways. Nevertheless, Ken Dahl was mean. Uh, he was uh, rough. He was uh, the most politically conservative man I've ever met. In my life, Rush Limbaugh was a liberal, according to him, literally. Like, he said that to me multiple times. He's also very stubborn. He drove me nuts. After I preached on Sunday mornings, he would interrupt the benediction and come forward from the back row all the way to the front, and then he would stand in front of the congregation and tell everyone why everything they heard was wrong. And, you know, if you know my story, I was a heretic at that point in my life. I was preaching all kinds of things that weren't true, some things that were, but... He was probably more right than I want to give him credit for at that time, okay? <clears throat> anyway, I didn't like the guy. <laughs> when we were pastors at that church, Gio and I decided to start a ministry that was like a social justice outreach at first, but it became a congregation in its own right. It was for Hispanic people. Um, the neighborhood was 80% Hispanic. Gio and I both speak Spanish, and we thought, we'll do English classes, we'll do Bible studies, we'll do childcare, we'll do BBS, we'll have a church, and we did. Uh, over time, but uh, Kendall hated that idea. He hated it with a passion, and he always made sure to tell me how bad, how much he hated that idea. Um, he knew, he said, he knew that more than half of those Spanish speakers in that community had come into this country illegally, and he constantly criticized the idea of his church, his church, he would tell you, his church, using those limited resources to help these people, unless it was to help them get back to where they came from. 
And one time, uh, Ken invited me to fly on his twin-engine airplane, and I declined because I was pretty sure Ken wanted me dead. And I thought that sounded <laughs> like a convenient way to do that. And nevertheless, he persisted, and, uh, and I ended up going flying with him over the Kansas City skyline. After that, we went to Denny's for breakfast, and I'll never forget that breakfast as long as I live. We both sat there with eggs and bacon, and uh, he sat there telling me why everything I'd ever preached at his church was false. And in particular, this one sermon where I preached about uh, the need to suffer. I said, Christians need to suffer. Suffering puts us in step with Christ. I still believe this part in a way today. Suffering isn't essential for salvation, but suffering is one way to live out your salvation and really know. Like when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, I think that's what he's talking about. But Ken Dahl hated that idea because he said, I've never suffered a day in my life. He said, I've never uh, wanted for anything. I've always had a job. I've always had more than enough. God's never made me suffer. And as he's telling me this, he starts to cry into his like Grand Slam breakfast from Denny's, right? Starts to cry. And I'm like, what's going on right now? But, but I realized he was worried about the state of his soul. He was in his 70s and wanted to be sure. And when he told me he's never suffered, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, dude, your name is Ken Dahl. <laughs> like, middle school must have been brutal for a kid named Ken Dahl. Anyway, he insisted he didn't suffer. And I said, what about when your wife got cancer? He said, it was hard, but I didn't suffer. I said, what about 9-11? This was a couple years after 9-11. He said, I got angry, but I didn't suffer. He said, the only time I can ever remember really doing anything remotely close to suffering is when mama died. And then he started to cry even more. And then as tough guys do, he sucked it up and stuffed it down somewhere deep inside and insisted we change the subject. And he got right back to talking about my sermons again. But I think something opened up in him that day. I think God, through a her heretical preacher, confronted him with some truth that was uncomfortable but necessary. Something changed for him that day. I don't know exactly how or when. But I know that the next week, when we opened that his, his church up again on a Sunday, or a Saturday morning, I'm sorry, when we met with the Hispanic community, for all those mothers and babies and others who had been traumatized with unthinkable trauma in their home countries and, and getting here as well, all those people that Ken Dahl made a habit of calling criminals and illegals and all the other political hot-button words, when they came to gather and play and worship God in safety, Ken showed up. And he came and banged on the door of his church because we locked those doors because those folks only felt safe at that time. I don't know if you all remember how intense it was after 9-11 for folks that didn't feel safe. Anyway, um, Ken showed up at the door and banged on the door. And the kids uh, looked out the window and said, Este hombre está aquí. Este hombre está aquí. This man's here. And I said, which man? ¿Cuál hombre? And they said, el grandote, the giant. <laughs> And I knew who it was, and I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> and I opened the door, and there was Ken, holding, uh, holding two grocery bags full of bluebell ice cream. And he said he just happened to be in the neighborhood. But I believe he was born again. Not by his own doing. By the grace of God, every hard heart can be softened, including yours and mine, every cynicism, 
can be transformed into optimism. Every despair can become joy. Every depression can become hope. Not by working it out yourself, but by believing and receiving the only promise that will never fail you. That you're loved. That's why he came. He came to have you home again like a great mother. So I pray you'll receive that invitation today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who came to remind Nicodemus and me and all of us what it really means to know you and to be saved by you. Lord, it's not our own doing. It's not our discipline or our work ethic that gets us there. It is simply the miracle of your amazing grace. Lord, we want to be obedient. We want to be sanctified and live holy lives and all of that, but only as a response to that simple free gift of grace that gives us new birth and new hearts by which we become new creations that maybe no one else who used to know us will recognize us anymore because we're doing crazy things like showing up with ice cream at an event we used to despise. We're reaching out to neighbors that we used to not know. We are loving people in ways that we never would have before, Lord. Make us unrecognizable by your grace. Make us new. Baptize us with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.